0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Morning. I'm so excited to be here. I love you guys. I'm so glad to be here with you. Make sure this is open. Kind of a funny story. I, I did remember preaching one time. Um, as, as I preached at many different churches, um, this was a period where I didn't know week to week where I was going to preach. And so all kinds of different pulpits, all kinds of different setups, um, never knowing quite, you know, they're never the same. But um, I had a big water. For some reason, it was like a really big water and there was nowhere to put it, and so it was just the most awkward holding it, and then to get a drink, I had to, you know, right in the middle of service, in the middle of a sermon, kneel down, and so I don't know why I just thought about that, so that to say thank you for this pulpit, it's just so functional and heavy, and it's perfect. I'm so glad to be here this morning, guys. Um, so the last couple of weeks, I hope you guys have been encouraged, so two weeks ago, we talked about Sabbath, and I'm telling you guys, you guys need to rest, right, just, just rest, um, last week we talked about um, dating and romance and courting and, you know, and, and romantic love. And so again, I, I hope you were encouraged by that. I hope you could apply that. Um, and I hope you got your rest and your fun and went out on your date because this week it's back and we are going to go heavy theology. So we're going to get right back into this, some serious Christology this week. And so my first question for us is, who likes to read autobiographies? You just raise your hand, yeah? All right, well, I think we're going to have uh, uh, more hands raised in a little bit. And so I love reading autobiographies. Autobiographies have been some of my favorite books I've ever written, just completely changed my life, changed my perspective, and just like, oh my gosh, you can live like this, you can do this. And so, so many of my heroes getting to, to figure out how they think It's been such a blessing uh, to me. And so, you know, we read autobiographies to learn a bunch about people, um, where they come from, like their family situation, their relationships, what makes them tick, what are their motivations, what are the stories behind the stories and the action. And we want to know as much as we possibly can about them. However, as much as information as we can cram, even if we learn as much as we possibly can from, you know, Wikipedia and books, and we get all this information, and we even become an authority on the person, and we run their fan club, right, for them on Facebook, without them knowing. We, we run their fan club, we just know everything about them. That doesn't mean that we actually know the person. Knowing about doesn't equal knowing, and so the truth is, the Bible is an autobiography of God. And so if you read the Bible, you, I hope you love autobiographies, because this is an autobiography of God. In fact, we see Jesus, he says this multiple times, but even in our text today, um, in, in chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, Jesus says, "'For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how are you, you going to believe my words?' And so Jesus is talking to these people who love Scripture, love Torah, worship Scripture. They absolutely adore it. And so we have this awkward situation where Jesus is approaching this, this would-be fan club, right, of this book that is written by him and all about him, and they don't want to let him into their group. And so it's really awkward, it's really bizarre, but that is what is happening here. And likewise, today, there's many experts in the Bible who could tell you so much about the Bible, um, have memorized large portions of Scripture, right? Um, they, they could tell you, I mean, they have a good hermeneutic, context, history, theology. They, they, they can communicate all of that. I mean, they're so good, they could even pronounce names correctly, right? I mean, they just, they know everything there is to know about the Bible, and yet consequently, they don't know God because they don't know Jesus. And don't get me wrong, it's important to read the Bible and to know everything that we possibly can to get the the facts right. Um, As Jacob reminded me a few weeks ago of a quote by A.W. Tozer, where he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That is the most important thing about us, what we think about God. It motivates and informs all of our life. And so we read the Bible to know about God. We read the Bible and see that it is all about Jesus. I mean, even today, this tiny passage, we're reading half of a chapter, there's so much Christology here. It's just incredible how much Jesus is in the Bible. And yet, even as we get into this, and I think it's so interesting and it's so good, all this Christology, the goal isn't for us to have a good Christology, right? There's people who have that. The goal is to believe in and follow and worship Jesus, right? To know Jesus, know Jesus personally, not just know about him. And so it's with that in mind, church, um, today our text will be John chapter 5, uh, verses 18 through 47. And our sermon is Equality, Authority, and the Witnesses of Jesus' Deity. <clears throat> so let me, let me pray for us before we get started. Heavenly Father, there, there is no greater information, knowledge, than, than knowing about you. And there is nothing greater in this life than knowing you, so may um, our worship and our study of your word will be worship to you, Lord, and may we connect with you personally. Would you open our eyes and hearts to know you intimately, Lord God? And we ask this, Lord, to your glory. Amen. So Jesus heals this guy who, who's been an invalid for 38 years. He can't move. He's sick. And, and so he's healed, and this should be celebrated, right? There should be like a parade, and people should be cheering, the, the, the fact that this guy is healed, even if people didn't like him, they should still be celebrating because at least he's not going to be around anymore, right? This guy can get up and go and, and and move on with his life. People have spent their whole lives listening to this guy beg, and he's healed, um, but it takes place on the Sabbath, and so which is fine for you and I, but these Jews here are absolutely triggered. Right, they are triggered on the Sabbath? Are you kidding me? And so we read about this in verses fifteen through eighteen, so just backtracking real quickly. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing all these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so, and and, and Jesus' response is like, yeah, God has been working, and so I am working. And and one great thing about God that I certainly appreciate and don't take for granted is that God never takes a Sabbath, right? I mean, he has the all of existence and eternity and, and all... Everything, matter as we know it, is held together by God. And so Jesus says here, God is still active. And so he, he doesn't labor in a work sense, but he's still active, just like in the healing here. God is still active in human affairs, which means, as these, as these Jews deduce, which is true, is that Jesus is saying that he is equal to God. And so the first thing I want to look at this morning is this idea of equal or equality with God. And so we start by looking at chapter one, which you know, we went through, I think, six weeks just to get us through chapter one because it's just all about the deity of Jesus, right? Setting up the fact right at the beginning, Jesus is absolutely God. This is non-negotiable. Um, you know, I talk to so many of you very often and we have discussions about biblical stuff and I'm like, hey, we're gonna disagree and we're still gonna love each other afterwards. You know, we're gonna disagree and nothing is gonna change. And yet this is the topic where, I think we're all on the same page. Is this, The deity of Jesus is something where this is the hill we are going to die on. This is where I'm going to push back against you. This is where I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say, no, Jesus is absolutely deity. And so this is what poses the problem here in this passage, is that the Jews believe there's only one God. And so, yes, we agree with that. There's only one God. But, um, so far so good, but but what they're trying to figure out is, well, if Jesus is saying he's equal with God the Father, that equals two gods, right? So that that doesn't make sense. And so they don't understand the relationship Jesus has with the Father, which Jesus is about um, to lay out. Um, Jesus could be God, can be God, is God, without God being two. And so as we've seen in John already, um, we also have the Holy Spirit. So we have a trinity here. And so we have three in one, a triune God. And this is what Jesus is trying to explain to them how all this works. And so for us this morning, because I believe this is so important that we must get this right, as we consider the equality of God, when we're talking about the equality of God, which is Jesus is being accused of, and it is true, what we are talking about is known as the ontological trinity. The ontological trinity, and maybe that's a new word for a lot of us, but I think it's important. And so when we talk about the the ontological trinity, um, Matthew Barrett puts it this way. Ontology is the study of being. When we talk about the ontological trinity, or as some theologians term it, eminent trinity, we are referring to the trinity itself without the work of creation or redemption. The ontological structure of the trinity is unity. And so the ontological, ontological trinity, when we hear that, when we think about that, we have to separate how God works in our salvation from who God is always, right? And so this, goes, this ties in all the way back to John chapter one. Who is God? What does the trinity look like? And so ontologically, regardless you know, of Jesus coming in the flesh or the work of the Spirit, any of that, God has always been God, Three persons in one, right? The same essence and nature and being. God is always God. Each person is equally God, right? God God is not a pie chart. It's not like each member of the Trinity is 33.3333% God. Each member of the Trinity is 100% God. The Trinity is never so distinct in its members that any are separate or independent from the others. They never cease to be God together. The Trinity is not a team that assembles, as some would believe, right? That they're not the Avengers, right? They don't just assemble to be the Trinity. They are always, the three of them, the Trinity. And I have heard it said, rightfully so, all that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. And so the Jews are right in that Jesus is saying that he is equal with God, that he is equal with God the Father. And so what Jesus does next, it's, it's brilliant, it's great, is, is he doesn't even address the fact of the ontology or equality, but he starts talking about the relationship. So he lets like them into this conversation. He lets them have a look at the Trinity itself and his relationships. In verses 19 through 22, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing Of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows them all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so here we see the intimacy, right? The the unity between the Father and the Son. If you remember back in in chapter one, we talked about this this idea of Jesus continually facing God, right? And moving towards God. They're so close together, they're so face to face that they can't possibly get more face to face, and yet. The actual Greek says they're still moving closer to each other. So what one does, the other does. And Jesus uses this example that they'd be familiar with. Well, it's like in your, in your culture, you know when a son is raised up that he's alongside his father. He's learning his father's business. He's, learn, he's learning the trade. He's learning the culture. And so the father is becoming, the son is becoming just like the father. And so they work side by side until the day where the father says, all right, we're still going to work together, but now you're going to be in charge, and I'm going to take a step back. And so, and we see that here as the Father gives Jesus authority. And so in verse 23, it says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so this, this, this is interesting because what he's saying is, like, this, this is equality. This is ontology. Like, we are the same. And so you guys are trying. You're arguing with me about honoring God, but we we are the same. And this is so important to understand. um, To understand the gospel, as it reads in verse 24: Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment, um, but has passed from death to life. And again, it's God and Jesus equal, right? The, The ontology there. And so if you believe the Father, you listen to the Son, right? If you're saying you believe in God, then then you listen to the Son. And it's the Son who allows you to pass through judgment, right? Enter into all of eternity with the triune God. Believing in the death of Jesus, that that would pay the, 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 the price of your sin, is also at the same time believing that God the Father says, yes, I accept that price for your sin, right? At the same time, that's what's known as propitiation, that the Father says, yes, I accept this payment. And so it's not like Jesus just did, did something hoping that it would be enough. It's like, no, God, the Father, this has been the plan all along. This, this was how, how it was gonna work. And of course, the Holy Spirit allows us to believe in that sacrifice, even 2,000 years later. You know, why would we believe in this 2,000 years later if it wasn't the Holy Spirit telling us, yes, this is true in our spirit? Like, why would we be getting together and meeting and singing and celebrating unless God himself and the Holy Spirit gave us hearts and minds and clicked and like, yes, this is absolutely true. And so what we see here in this, in the, in the Trinity's work in our salvation is what's known as the economic Trinity. The economic Trinity. And so when we speak of the economic Trinity, a good definition would be the activity of God and the roles of the three persons regarding Creation and redemption. And so, in other words, this is different, right, from ontology, like who God is, right? Because God is God no matter what. And so, economically, it talks about how God is, is interacting with us in our life. The plan was always absolutely for Jesus to come and save us. For way back into eternity, God the Father sends the Son, sends the Son, gives him authority. Like, you're going to have the authority to do this, to go and to save and to recro- uh, rec- uh, acquire redemption. And the Holy Spirit likewise is like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to show all these people who are dead, who are spiritually dead, who have no idea about any of this stuff, I'm going to go inside them and I'm going to click. I'm going to turn on their radars. I'm going to give them a new heart and they're going to see that this is true. And so in that, in the sending of the Son from the Father, in, in the actions of the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, highlighting that what we have is not three gods saving us, right? We have one God saving us. We have one God who saves us. You know, And I know we're talking a lot about this, but believe it or not, this passage is what brings a lot of people astray. A lot of the heresy, the true number one heresy in the church throughout the history of the church has been their Christology, their belief about Jesus. And this has been a problem passage for people not understanding you know, the difference in, in who God is and how God functions in our salvation. This doesn't mean that Jesus is less than the Father, right? Because that's what people will read this passage. Other churches, even in Bakersfield, will say Jesus is a created being, less than the Father. The Father created Jesus and is trying to, trying to raise him up to be a little God and he has his brother Satan and you know, and all this crazy stuff that, that is not in, the, in, in here at all. And so Jesus, by his grace, is explaining this to us so we can get it. So Jesus is not less than the Father and the Holy Spirit is not a sidekick, right? It's not, oh yeah, and Holy Spirit also come along and we're gonna, we're gonna do this incredible work. And so what we see in the economy of the Trinity is our offense against God the Father, right? The wrath of God the Father being taken by the Son. And then the Holy Spirit showing us, like, look, your sin is paid for. This is what you need to believe. And that's how it works together to save us. And so if we see Jesus, we see the Father, right? If We see Jesus for who Jesus is. We see God the Father, and if we see Jesus and we see God the Father, it is the Holy Spirit allowing us to see, right? And so what we have here is the economy of the Trinity working to save us, all three together to give us this view and vision of who Jesus is so that we can be saved. You know, and again, all by grace, right? All by grace. God didn't owe us anything. Um, we'll even see in this discussion that Jesus says, I don't even have to be having this discussion with you guys. I just want you guys to be saved, Right? That's why I'm here. So just, you know, all the glory to God here. And so let's continue reading verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." And so what's all this about? Like, how do, how do we start talking about judgment all of a sudden? And so remember the context of this, if you go back a little bit, is the Sabbath. And so this is Jesus's argument against them for their hating on him for, for, for healing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is communicating at least two things here to kind of put them in perspective because they're stressing and triggered about this Sabbath thing. And the first thing is that if he healed somebody on the Sabbath— they're going to be really triggered that he's just going to all out raise people from the dead, right? Like, you're mad that I healed? I'm calling people from the tombs. I am making people dead to being alive. It says Jesus has a job to do. He's going to do it, and it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. Second, Jesus is going to judge everyone on judgment day, right? The evil to to hell and those who believe in him to, to eternal life, right? And so in other words, like, hey guys, maybe don't stress about the Sabbath. Maybe you guys, instead of thinking about the Sabbath day, maybe start thinking about Judgment Day. Because guess what? Like, I'm in charge of both of them. So put that in your perspective. <clears throat> and then after this, again, just by grace here, Jesus continues to talk to them. And he starts giving them a defense. He doesn't owe these, them anything at all. And then he starts giving them a defense. And so I'm um, just like a trial, he starts calling witnesses, right? He starts calling, he starts calling witnesses. And so um, <clears throat> we see this start in verses 30 and 31, where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so Jesus, he's not saying that his testimony is not true, but he's talking to to these Jews who are very much about the Torah, about Scripture, about the law. And so what he's referencing here is a couple of texts, but we'll just look at one, Deuteronomy 17.6, where it says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall be put to death on the evidence, no person shall be put to death on the evidence of one person. And so Jesus here, he's going to call three witnesses, right, to to appease them. He's like, all right, you guys, I'm going to give you witnesses. I don't need to. but And so what we'll find is three witnesses to Jesus' deity and his authority that he has. And the first one, um, John the Baptist. And we read this in verses 33 through 35. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. He was a burning light and a shining lamp, and you were f- willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so it's interesting here that at this point, John the Baptist is actually much more famous than Jesus, right? This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. John the Baptist has been doing this He's been doing this a long time. And not only is John popular, which he is, but uh, Jews and Pharisees, remember going back a couple of chapters, they keep trying to talk to him, right? They, they want to get in with him, maybe do ministry together, trying to figure out what's going on with him because people can see that God is blessing him. And Jesus says he it was, it was a shining light to them, like a rock star to them. They knew, they knew he was a prophet. He was important. But at the, same, at the same time, Jesus is saying, look, you all were excited about John, And John is excited about me, right? John is pointing to me. And so John is my witness, not yours. And so John is going to be a witness for me against you. And again, noticing in verse 34 that it mentions that Jesus doesn't owe anybody any explanation ever. But he's having this discussion with them because he wants them to be saved. All this is by grace, he wants them to be saved. And so Jesus calls a second witness, because he needs at least two or three, according to Scripture, his Scripture that he wrote. So the second, he calls on God the Father, God the Father, um, and he does this through works. And we see this in verses 36 and 37, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And that the Father who sent me himself has borne witness about me. And so Jesus moves from a contemporary witness to a cosmic one, right? The ultimate call to the witness stand. I call God, right, the Father, to witness about me. And the way Jesus does this is by saying, the thing that you're mad about about me, the reason that you want to kill me because I healed this guy, testifies to the fact that God is my witness. Because nobody else can heal somebody who's been disabled for 38 years. And so God has given him the authority over everything, even the laws of nature. Otherwise, he couldn't have done that. This shows that Jesus is God. You may remember in John 3, 2, Nicodemus, when he was talking to Jesus, says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Why? For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. So if you're paying attention at all to what Jesus is doing, this guy has to be from God. There's no way, there's no other explanation other than he is from God, which means he has the witness and the authority and the approval of God, God the Father. And so Jesus could have stopped there. Now he has two, right? It's all he technically needs, but no, he's gonna give them one more that they would be very familiar with, And that is the witness of Scripture, and specifically Moses. And so in verse 39, it says, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So Scripture. And then in the second half of verse 45, it says, um, through 47, There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so this is like, it's getting personal. Like this is, you know, cutting a wound and pouring salt in it. It's like, they love scripture. Like I love the Bible, like, we love the Bible. They love super, super reverence for Scripture. In fact, supernatural reverence for Scripture. So they would say, <clears throat> as much as you knew the Word, you actually benefit, benefited from it spiritually. If you memorize Scripture, you could actually be saved. Like, you could know enough about the Bible where that's it. You are done. Your memorization of the Bible Is what gives you eternal life. So the scriptures, it wasn't just that they were trying to see what was in the scriptures, but they believed just the scriptures themselves had a power. And so Jesus, that's why Jesus says, Do you think you have eternal life just by going through them? No. It's like you go through them to see that they point to me. And so they thought memorizing scripture was more about um, the autobiography of Moses, right? This is this is all about Moses. And Jesus, again, is saying, you all were excited about Moses, but Moses is excited about me. Right, I talked to Moses. I talked to Moses in that bush. I gave Moses all the directions. Moses followed me, and so Moses is my witness against you and your use of Scripture. Scripture is my autobiography, and you won't even have me. And it's quite the sobering picture. Uh, One that I think is just as important today for us. Like this isn't like, oh, those Jews, they got it all wrong. No, we need to hear this today. Like this this applies to us today. And how we treat Scripture and what we believe Scripture is the most important thing about us. Because that's how we learn about God. And what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so real quickly, I want to look at three lessons we could learn in this passage about using Scripture Christologically using Scripture Christologically. And the first is to interpret Scripture Christologically. And so we see this in verses 38 through 40. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so you may know a lot about Scripture. You may have the devotional life of a saint, right? I mean, you may read the Bible every month and read it 12 times in a year, right? And so that's okay, but it's not gonna save you, right? You could read the Bible every single day, that is not gonna save you because it's not the process that saves you, right? It's your response to what the Bible says that saves you. It's not a book to, to memorize facts about right? This isn't about taking a test. I've been there, done that. Um, That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of reading the Bible isn't to memorize facts so that we can win Bible trivia, right? The Jews would crush us. They would crush us in this. And so that's not the point. And so when we interpret Scripture, we have to remember first that we need to understand it's the autobiography of Jesus. It is the story of God, You can technically read the Bible, as these Jews did, and completely miss it. Completely miss Jesus everywhere, right? From the sacrificial system, you know, and the ark, and the, you know, in in our verse um, in Scripture reading today. Why did we read that verse? Because all the way back talking to Isaiah, God is talking about himself as us, right? So we see the Trinity, right? All the way back through the Old Testament. The Trinity is not a New Testament, you know, construct. We, We see that plurality all throughout the Hebrew language. And so this whole story is about Jesus. We have to read Scripture understanding this is the autobiography of Jesus, written by Jesus, how he created us, how he's talked to us, how he set up every system, given every example to set up his coming so that we would understand it and believe in him. And then secondly, that we would come to Jesus for eternal life. And so, and maybe that's not, maybe interpreting scripture correctly isn't the right term. Maybe it's, it's interpreting scripture successfully, coming to Jesus for eternal life. Because technically you can interpret scripture correctly and you can see Jesus and you could point to all the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. You could see Jesus throughout the New Testament. You, you could write a book about Christology and still not believe and follow Jesus. There are people with doctrines who again know so much more than us, than me, and and do not follow and believe in Jesus, but can recite information about him. And it's hard to decide which is more tragic for me. The fact that you had these, these Jews that memorized the entire scripture, literally memorized it from birth, can recite all of scripture and didn't see Jesus. Or people today who can see Jesus tell you every fact about Jesus in the Bible and then reject him. And secondly, we need to love God through receiving Christ. Love God through receiving Christ. In verses 42 and 43, it says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And this seems simple enough. Um, but, but these Jews here in chapter 5, they have a zeal for God. Let, let's not under, undermine them or sell them short. They have a zeal for God. They will kill for Scripture, right? They will be killed for Scripture. They take it very, very seriously. And so they would say, I would say genuinely that they love God, that they love God, but here they reject Jesus. And so we know, right, we know ontologically speaking that that doesn't make sense because Jesus and God are the same. There's no difference. And so... You can't reject Jesus and say you love God. And you can't handle Scripture correctly if you don't understand, right, the equality there, if you don't understand the Trinity. You need to know to love God is to love Jesus, and to love Jesus is to love God. There's there's, there's no way around that. And third, seek and give the glory to God, not men. We see this highlighted in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, they were more concerned about what others thought about their knowledge about God than about God. And so they wanted to be respected. They wanted to have authority. They wanted you all to know that they know more about Scripture than you do. Right? They want that glory and honor. I I can win Bible trivia. I have I I'm just so awesome at Scripture. And so, and we see this throughout the Gospels where um, they are very prideful because they they, they have it all memorized and, and keep they keep the law. And they also keep the glory, right? They, they memorize this the scripture about this incredible holy God, this, this loving, grace filled God. And instead of passing on the glory and taking what they knew and pointing people to God, they said, hey, look at me. Look at what I know about God. Like, they just completely cut in front of God to get the glory. And we can't do that. And so what we have here is theologians who knew about God without knowing God. They knew about God without knowing God. And I believe this is here in the Bible for a reason. This conversation is here for a reason. And this has to be a huge warning for us. So I think we all risk this a little bit. This might be something that that we deal with. This is something that scares me and that I have to guard myself against. Truthfully, I I love theology. Like, I love it. Um, I'm hoping to get my doctorate in theology at some point. You know, I love the names of theology, the Edwards and Augustins and Zwinglies and Calvins and even today the Wilsons and the Barretts. But if we're going to name drop, and if we're going to give glory to names, it has to be the name of Jesus. And so even with theologians like this, when we talk about them and discuss them, it has to be how they point to Jesus and what they say about Jesus. Because the truth is, that's what they would want. Every one of them. They would say, don't let me stand in the way, just let me point you to something about Jesus that's what they wanted, that's what God wants, that's what John the Baptist wanted, that's what Moses wants, not their glory, but the glory of God. And so let our scripture, our use of scripture be to know God and to give God the glory and to love God by knowing and loving Jesus and coming to him for eternal life. So let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.